This is the third and last part of my story. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, then please do so because this one is not separable. It carries along the same set of realizations, unfolding a landscape that is so clear for me, so authentic, so true, that shaped the way I see education and the world. It is a truth to me, just like experiences that are the truth to you. We are all in this life together. It does not matter who we are or where we come from, what color of skin, what gender, what age. Each has a purpose to discover or rekindle. If it's still dormant, then keep looking. It might be just around the corner. I am Manal Zainuddin, Global Education Consultant. Welcome to my podcast. This podcast serves to highlight education communities from macro and micro angles, leadership, learning, personal and professional growth, stories, interviews, talks, projects, and more coming up from around this globe, extending through this podcast Plutarch's famous quote that I had posted in all the places I have worked in, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. I have mentioned in the first episode of this series that curriculum, instruction, and assessment have always been points for me to reflect upon and inspect, not only out of professional excitement, commitment to my code of ethics and duties, but also out of personal curiosity for growth. As a teacher and a director in the past 20 years, I was expected to follow the path of academia. As a teacher in an international school, I was handed teacher's editions American and British curriculum plans that, as we all know, are usually aligned to standards of the education systems, respectively. Working on all curriculum components, curriculum mapping, scope and sequence, pacing guides, lesson planning, and many others, of course the terms differ from an education system to another, I started to realize in my sixth or seven years of my teaching experience, using international textbooks and material, that we were almost repeating the same themes in the same ways, with the differences of the added and elaborated content of the grade levels as we moved up the levels. Then there would be gaps between kindergarten and elementary, widening between elementary and middle school, middle school and high school, and extensively widening between high school and higher education. Children were losing their precious time of childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood, juggling all those subjects, pressured to perform well by their parents and sometimes by teachers. Teachers were struggling with their workload. So much could be reimagined. When one is in the field, fully committed and passionately doing what he or she is doing, such calls cannot be denied. Two truths I must admit. The first is that I am not a PhD degree holder examining all that. 
I have all the respect to the professors of education who have been working meticulously to design textbooks in alignment with standards. The second was that I was not working within a committee. I was just one intrigued teacher educator studying those curriculum material. But having interacted with K-12 learning systems, learners and teachers, and undertaken a thorough process of backward mapping, I got a bird's eye view of the education world and its outputs, weighing it in connection to 180 days per year of the life of every teacher and learner, as well as parents, systems, and investors, and connecting it to the real world and other elements beyond. I was very disappointed. I saw gaps and mazes, puzzles and losses, and I started asking myself questions. Why is all this happening? Why aren't all the departments of education creating a line of sight aligned to the needs of the people? And I say people in its organic implication, because at the end of their academic lives, those learners will be referred to as people, responsible for themselves, their families, their workplaces, and their overall community. Why are we taking the long, shallow path, wasting billions, exerting daunting effort, and losing the joy of learning, instead of the short and the deep? It was simply like using one's right hand to point at the left ear when asked to point at one's ear. One could simply point at his right ear, which is closest. Just like any other person, I doubted myself. What if I was wrong? What if I was making my professional life miserable? I could simply accept what I was given and carried on, performing my duties. But that, I couldn't. I started observing and searching. Education systems all over the world. Middle East countries, France, Germany, Finland, Australia, South Africa, and few other countries. I was reading and studying, and it turned out there were thousands of educators around the globe who were speaking about critical issues in education, departments of education, education organizations, and educational bodies within communities, principals, teachers, parents, and children themselves. It is true that there have been considerable improvements in the past two decades, such as collaborative researches, think tank conversations, and newly designed policies emphasizing higher order thinking skills, learner agency, and social emotional reforms about which we will speak thoroughly in future episodes. It is also true that there are other education school systems in the world that design their own curricula and pose great learner profiles. But as we think about all the countries across the continents, public and private institutions, learners, teachers, parents, and overall communities, when we zoom sky down, we get disheartened, seeing individuals struggling in the daily grind of what we should be, of what should be a living, exciting, prolific experience, leading to prolific societies. That added to what I had experienced firsthand. For example, at the beginning of my um, journey as a teacher, I had the privilege to work in a reputable school in my homeland, Lebanon, in which every teacher had his or her classroom, and learners would move from one classroom to another. That was a great opportunity because my class became my haven, and within its walls we read and wrote, talked much and walked more, and even role-played and danced. 
Those five years were unforgettable. I was an educator at heart. My learners were invigorated and I was soaring with joy. I still have their awesome pieces of writing, what I call creations. I can talk forever about that amazing beginning. But later, as I moved to another school, which is a K-12 school involving standardized testing, I was still an elementary English teacher. I was asked to assign pages of grammar and vocabulary as classwork or homework, and those children would spend, would spend lengthy periods solving pages until they would master those skills through those exercises. But when it came to writing, they would still make language errors. With hundreds of pages in anthologies and practice books, Less was left for deep learning and real-world practice. Teaching middle school was much more promising as I started to have the courage to step out of that framework. And when I was given the autonomy by my subject coordinator, having proven efficient teaching, I found myself at home opening more than 15, 18 notebooks and resource per session, redesigning it all on my computer. It was art to me. And I loved how I tied all those ends for each grade level into one beautiful velvety ribbon band. I had to use what was imposed upon us, and this is what I could not control, and mold it into something new that could entice learners, themes that were gripping, instead of simply reading a literary passage or do a vocabulary fill in the blanks. What was more amazing was the implementation. I would start my week thrilled with what I was carrying with me to school. An ignited mind, a fully engaged heart, and needless to say, a resourceful briefcase. Later as a director, I extended the skills that proved highly successful into other subjects. Believing in the concept of the whole rather than fragments, I was keen at integrating subjects, language arts, mathematics, sciences, art, physical education, music, and other disciplines to create a rich canvas of a learning activity. I designed programs such as SAT Quest, National Geographic, Metacognition Ignition, and more. I remember I started in 2007 a joint venture with a school librarian. She was a very nice educator from the Philippines, who was as excited as myself in texts. My love for books always leads me to libraries everywhere I go. Classes were my favorite spot in school. Well, that library at the corner of the vast blue and yellow floor playground was my other favorite. I used to go there in my free periods. Once I stepped through that small brown door, all the hustle would be locked out and all what my senses would catch was silence, peace, rejuvenation seeing those bookcases smiling at me, and the warmest good morning from my dear librarian colleague. We worked for three years on a huge portfolio that I keep until this day. She would collect articles from the newspapers that would land in the library and might be thought a few days later to be outdated, and created an anthology in which my high school SAT and IGCSEs and A-level students read and worked on as projects in classes afterwards. Those 15 and 16-year-old learners discovered for the first time the complexity and the diversity of the outside world through the lenses of the community, not their teacher. 
latest news about education, sports, and culture, opinion columns, and even some brain facts and crosswords. I simply wanted them to see the real world, not just the one they see from the windows of their textbooks. I would also take from the library National Geographic magazines, some of them dated back to the 80s, neatly nested by my dear librarian in the bottom shelves. I remember her saying, but Mrs. Manal, they are too old. I would smile and tell her, they're stacked, they're neat, they're the butts of amazing scientists and photographers. They're special. She would smile back and I would carry those yellow frame gems and turn, to my, and turn my English classes into science and cultural hubs where we would interweave our anthology textbooks, novels, grammar and writing amid collaborative learning with speaking and listening. My English language arts classes were never just English. They were mathematics, sciences, economics, and I remember learners asking me at the beginning, Mrs. Manal, why do we need economics now? Mathematics? And I would smile, let's just get the books. We did art and physical education. At times we did push-ups and class walk around, anything that would trigger their minds and bodies, anything that would unveil human potential. My heart pounds remembering all this now. It is pure joy to me. The great news is we were still in alignment with the standards. This has already linked to instruction. Instruction or the methodologies through which those curriculum maps and objectives would be presented was a challenge. But as just mentioned, there was always a way for me. Entrusted with autonomy, my lessons were engaging as much as I could. But with assessments and more drastically standardized assessments, it was not always a smooth ride. We had to trim learning to do assessments and standardized assessment preparation. This became much more disheartening when, when I became a director. At that stage, I was responsible for an entire school, not just learning, but teaching and abiding by policy mandates. That was not much malleable as it was before. Leadership to me was an incredible experience in terms of team management, accountability and achievement. And I was very proud to have established conscious leadership in myself and in those working with me, including learners. Empowerment, strength and joy. I trained hundreds of teachers through robust advanced professional development programs that I have designed myself. The climate and culture we have established was exemplary. Sidelined by active learning, whole brain teaching and learning, reflective teaching and learning, project-based learning, STEM. And I remember we were pioneers in 2016. Our STEM fair was featured in the local newspaper. We also did content and language integrated learning, uh, character education, reading programs, read, read and read, and much more. Then comes scoring and report cards. Scoring is very helpful when it pinpoints matters for improvement through a non-judgmental way and non-traditional means. What we see instead in most education systems is, is that these scores and report cards have become the driving force for learning from the point of view of parents, leadership, and even governments. Many schools spend hours and hours preparing for tests rather than widening their horizons for a more enjoyable learning experience and more exciting future. 
The saddening part is that we, adults, continue to consider scoring as indispensable. And we are obliged to do so on a global standardized scale because it is considered the formal language of assessment. Again, I am not against scoring and I cannot be because there is a grand system much bigger than me and you. However, there are ways to carry on such such a process, such as rubrics, monitor logs, and still meet requirements. Standardized tests, such as PISA tests, are being developed now to encompass social-emotional criteria, and this is a positive indication. Another observation was also alarming. Judging learners, which is detrimental to all our efforts and good intentions of creating a healthy school community. Categorizing or classifying learners as excellent, very good, good, fair, and so on, unpacks the opposite to the phrases in our handbooks, such as encouraging learners, creating lifelong learning experiences. If that would just be ink on paper, it is not a concern. But when schools and parents evaluate the child rather than the task or the performance itself, and when a child is treated as per his or or her score and classification, then no words to say. We are opposing the wondrous differences of children and suffocating the experience of trial and error, which is natural in learning. So with restrictions imposed by curriculum and assessment, I was confined. I had lots of plans that I could not put into action due to time and assessment restraints. Few plans did not work well as I expected, such as a program that I designed, a very uh, dear program to me, fostering my little mind, and other two, because we always had to remain in certain purviews, stuck to certain norms, and tugged by certain policies. I am not against policies because well-designed, all-encompassing systems provide clear layouts for general practices. This is needed in big communities. For example, we read in student handbooks that bullying is not allowed in school. There is nothing wrong when setting such a rule because bullying simply should not be allowed. But the way it is stated and the context in which it is handled makes all the difference. So here, how do we imply to our community that bullying is not allowed? This is a tough question because this has to engage the entire school in three main practices. The first, which is the most important, is modeling being kind, understanding, and unharmful in all types of ways. The second are those activities that embody and generate situations about bullying to show it in real-life contexts and in a positive, empathetic manner. The third is uh, adequate, immediate, wise interventions when bullying occurs. I am also not against evaluations because what we cannot measure, we cannot evaluate and consequently cannot improve. For years, I have worked on quality education, improvement planning that is based on research. I have led five-year improvement plans and did all the data analysis that is the foundation of that meticulous process. I also trained hundreds, including principals, to do that. I am also certified for school reviews and quality assurance assurances, so doing researches and measuring quality based on standards is vital in my work. But my point is, how do we identify what needs to be improved and what needs to be strengthened? In other words, 
What type of data do we have to collect instead of juggling lots of unneeded data? Who to, en to engage in that process? And to what extent is that engagement activated? What practical plans and step of action can be taken? And so on. The key is that these processes can be effective without being tedious, purposeful without causing loss of real learning time and pressure on teachers. It requires agility and art. At the end, I have to say it is never only about the school. It is also about the family and the socio-economic factors. We will be speaking about that in future episodes. Thank you for taking time to listen to this third and last part of my story, the longest for last, I guess. There is so much to talk about. You can find much more on my website, www.orbitsdevelopment.com, resources and blog. The beauty of life is in its simplicity and complexity, a pendulum that never stops swinging. Now it is the 21st century and even more COVID-19 era the swinging is much more intense. 20 years of exploring myself as I explored education, and I'm certain that many of you are already amidst insightful explorations yourselves. Yes, we are still here, still discussing, debating, measuring, evaluating. The process will not stop because life itself is a journey. I would love if you stay tuned for the upcoming episode in which I will speak about the interdisciplinary through transdisciplinary approach of ORBITS ORBITS, and the research that I have conducted in the past 10 plus years that led to ORBITS. I always believed in beautiful minds of children and adults. We are here to bloom. If we do not bloom from the first time, then we, we can pluck the weeds, nourish ourselves and allow the blooming to happen under the sun. Until next time, let us keep this open-ended and drop a question for all of us to ponder. And this is not an easy question. To what extent is education operating in isolation from how well-balanced life should be?